Welcome to the Painless Podcast. Hey, it's Chris Hartwig from Painless Networking here. Thank you very much for joining me for Episode 5, Part 1 with Steve Bardo. More about the parts in a second. Just a note that the goal for each Painless Podcast is to connect with and get to know great people in sports, events, startups, and cause marketing. Also, quickly want to thank our sponsor who makes this week's episode possible, the good folks at the Bank of America Shamrock Shuffle. They're offering painless networkers a special deal to save $10 off registration for the April 2nd Shuffle. Get to shamrockshuffle.com slash registration today and use the code painless to save 10 bucks right now. Hurry up because prices go up next week. Thank you, Bank of America Shamrock Shuffle. All right, today's guest, Stephen Bardo, currently basketball analyst, college hoops on BTN, FS1 with Yahoo Sports. He also does uh, professional hoops with the Chicago Sky broadcasts and much, much more. Now, he's also probably best known nationally as the starting point guard on the 1989 U of I Flying Illini Final Four team. And Stephen went on to play professionally for 10 seasons three NBA teams, three CBA teams, as well as teams in uh, Europe, uh, France and Spain, and in Japan. Some great experiences, life experiences, and basketball experiences from those that he'll talk about today. Perhaps most importantly, Steve gives back a ton, uh, particularly in a mentor and motivational speaking kind of a role, talk to all kinds of teens through college athletes, male, female, on uh, life skills and basketball skills, and has taken a lot of that experience and his passion for making a difference to form a new nonprofit called On Point Leadership around uh, combating violence and gang, gang recruitment, those kinds of things in Chicago, using the game and lessons of basketball. Uh, now moving to the parts on parts, I've received feedback from a lot of folks that uh, would love to have shorter episodes or chunks, uh, if you will. Uh, now, I think it's really a, a good idea to get 40, 50 minutes or so with folks to, to really understand what's going on. But I'm going to try splitting these up into two parts uh, today with Stephen. Um, part one focuses on primarily on playing hoops growing up. Uh, through professional career and getting into broadcasting. Part two touches on some of that, but then also goes into developing the next generation of leaders that we talked about and how he's making a difference, attacking it headfirst with on-point leadership. So let's check the first part out with Stephen from his place in Chicago's Logan Square. Let's get connected with Stephen Bardo. And uh, let's just get right into it. The... Um, you know, we look back to as a as myself as an admitted and biased Illini fan, uh, <laughs> back to the the flying Illini days. You were one of the most of the guys were from Chicago area, and now you would I'm sure definitely call yourself a Chicagoan. But you're yes. actually hail from uh, from born in Kentucky and grew up in Southern Illinois, right? Yeah, I grew up in the shadows of Southern Illinois University. Um, basically, grew up on the campus. My dad was a student athlete. Uh, played basketball and ran track in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, became a professor in educational psychology. Went on to be, do a bunch of stuff. Interim athletic director. Faculty rep to the NCAA. 
medical director of med prep. So he's really been involved uh, throughout that university for 55 years. And, uh, you know, my brother and sister and I grew up on campus. And so that's kind of uh, developed our love for sports. You know, one of the things that we talked about, I think, is a is really a, a neat point and has to be an influence was what was the the statistic we talked about recently of the number of doctors that came through a, a oh program yeah his uh, med prep program which is a medical preparatory school for minority students a two-year program that prepares uh minority students for the rigors of medical school and i believe at one point five to seven percent of the african-american doctors around the country had been through his program so he's he's had quite an impact quite an impact on not just your lives, mm-hmm. but your your brother and sister, and now what did your mom do? Was she also an educator? No, she worked. Uh, she's an adult supervisor with the Girl Scout Association, so she's worked with them, and she's since retired, but goes back and does a lot of civic uh, uh, volunteer work. And so um, she was really the backbone of the family, uh, the one that was kind of in the the background a little bit, supporting all of us, making sure that everything was uh, good to go. Getting to practice and games and those kinds of things. Yeah. So you mentioned your dad was an athlete, student athlete. Um, Has basketball always been, was that a first love? Did you did you play something else? or? I played everything, Chris, but uh, basketball was always kind of the main thing in our household. Um, you know, dad having success at it. Um, but we I, I played soccer, golf, volleyball, tennis. I swam, ran track. Play flag football. Dad wouldn't let me play tackle football because I'm too skinny and too light in the britches, according to him. So, uh, but yeah, I played played all the sports, but basketball always had a special love in our house. Now, so speaking of basketball, you obviously we've talked about it. You've you played at uh, Illinois from '86 to '90 on that nationally revered flying Illini team. Um, you know, how did you pick Illinois? I don't know if I've ever actually talked to you about this. Of you know, what were the other schools that you were looking at, and you know, how did it come about you to play for the Ludo? Yeah, I was uh, recruited by about fifty to sixty schools around the country. Uh, I had had my pick of some really good ones, but um, my brother and I, we grew up watching a lot of basketball in the house, and so I was a. We were both Big Ten fans, but I kind of liked. Kentucky and he liked Missouri (laughs) but uh, he ended up in Indiana and I ended up at Illinois so go figure but uh, I took visits to uh, Notre Dame Northwestern Ohio State Michigan State and Illinois also uh, looked at Purdue and Missouri pretty pretty well but I was pretty much set on trying to play in the Big Ten at that time it was the premier conference in the country uh, I was far enough from home, but close enough to where mom and dad couldn't run up on me at a moment's notice, <laughs> but they could come in and support what I was doing. And I just fell in love with Illinois when I went on my visit. Now, what was your, what did you study in in school? Like Broadcast the, journalism. It was. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't remember. So when did that, you know, you played for 10 years professionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were able to do quite a bit, and that's way above average. Um, you know, very, very, very sm- small percentage of guys are able to do that. So uh, I know you consider yourself lucky with that, but it was so that was uh, something you were looking at in high school, even. 
yeah. knowing coming into to U of I. Yeah, the funny story with that. I, I wanted to be an electrical engineer growing up, and uh, you know, I could my sister and I could take stuff apart and put it back together, make it work. So I was always fascinated with things like that. But I took chemistry my junior year in high school, and me and chemistry didn't get along. So I, I figured if I couldn't do chemistry, I probably would not be able to do physics or any of the other science requirements. So I talked to my dad, and he said, well, you like to run your mouth, and you like sports. And he walked out. And I felt I, I was, my feelings were kind of hurt. And I'm sitting here like, you know, what the heck is this guy talking about? But then... Lo and behold, I kept thinking about it. I was like, oh, he's talking about commentating. He's talking about broadcasting. Because I sat and watched every sporting event from from the time I can remember to the time I was 18 leaving the house. I watched Enberg, Madden, Cosell. I watched them all, Chris. And I really didn't know that I was taking it all in. And, um, you know, started to look into that field in college. And it's it's been a great ride. When did you, what was your first broadcasting gig? Uh, were you playing at that point and you were you started doing broadcasting? What was it? Yeah, I was still playing professionally and uh, CLTV uh, came along and uh, the Bulls were hot in their second playoff run and I was able to come in and do a lot of work uh, in an internship role but got on the air and cut my teeth and I was horrible. Uh, I sucked but... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I, I did the painful thing, which is to go back and listen to your work and critique yourself, just like you would playing basketball and watching film. So, uh, but that, that was really my first experience, along with Jim Barry, who was a uh, sports uh, reporter and anchor at CBS2 Chicago. He brought me on as an intern, and he, has a, he had a radio show on a small WVON station, and I uh, cut my teeth there as well. It, it, so Jim and who else, uh, you know, when you were at that point trying to get started, who were your mentors? Who did you talk to? What kind of advice were you getting? I was very fortunate in that uh, playing basketball at Illinois affords you a lot of access to people. And one of those people was Dennis Swanson. He might be as, as responsible for the, um, the ascent in my career as anyone. Uh, he was a great friend. I met him while I was still in high school. I'm, I'm sorry, still in college. Did a radio interview with ESPN. He heard it. He came to Champaign the following fall. I met with him. He offered me a job, entry-level job with ESPN and ABC at the time. And I told him, I said, uh, Dennis, thank you so much for the opportunity. I have, I have aspirations to play pro ball. But if you don't mind, I'd like to stay in touch with you. So for 10 years, uh, every four to six months, I'd reach out. I'd call. I'd write a letter. Uh, when Ryan Baker, a, a fellow Illini, got married in New York, I was a little hungover, but I made it to his <laughs> office, and uh, we had a great chat and, uh, you know, just developed that relationship. And he busted down doors for me once my per- professional career was over. That's, uh, that's a pretty good name to have uh, in your corner. That uh, what was uh, over that time was he running was it ABC Sports or was it even he ABC was, Network? He was the president of ABC Sports. Yeah. Uh, then he was over ESPN. Then he was over ABC New York. Uh, ran all of the CBS stations in the country. Then did the same thing for Fox. He's one of the preeminent uh, media executives in the last forty years. Yeah. Does, did he start here? Was it in Chicago? He started right? in Chicago and uh, I think it was WBBM. And is he, uh, maybe mixing stories up, but was he the one who discovered Oprah? Yes. Okay. He's the one that got Oprah her start and gave her. Oprah and yeah. Steve Bardo. Uh, well, and Diane Burns as well. So I'm, okay. I'm the low I'm the low one well, on the that's total. Quite a, <laughs> that's quite a, uh, 
um, triangle of media powerhouses. Diane Burns, Steve Bardo, Oprah Winfrey, all on the same level, right? <laughs> I don't know. My you, mom would think so. Yeah, you're right. Right. Yes. <laughs> Shout out to mom. Hi, mom. Uh, the second already today for mom. The, um, who else besides, I mean, Dennis Swanson obviously is, is gigantic to have somebody like that in your corner. What, you know, on the local level, um, you know, I also, I, I knew Ryan from, uh, we took classes together back in Champaign as well. I'm, I'm assuming there was probably some dialogue back and forth with, with him as he's also climbing the ranks in uh, sports casting and broadcasting. Who else? How did you find the people who would give it to you straight? You know, I had the, I had the benefit of working with Lou Canellis early in my career. And Lou is a guy who I, I cherish and love because he gave me positive feedback. Criticism, it wasn't always positive, but it was criticism enough to say, oh, okay, I can go back to the drawing board and, and possibly look at this. So Lou Canellis was great. Jim Barry, as I mentioned before. But Clark Kellogg was key in my development as well. Clark would listen to my radio work. He would give me feedback. He knew that I was a guy that was hungry to get better, uh, and he thought I had a lot of potential, and he was really instrumental early on to give me uh, the encouragement that you need in this business because it's, yeah. it's a difficult business. And was he at, at that point, is he CB, or, um, he does CBS now, is he at ESPN or is he been at CBS? Then? He was making the transition from ESPN to C- CBS. Around that time. Yeah, around okay. that time. Mm-hmm. How did you know how to push these guys to give you some of these answers? Or was it you were drawn to somebody like Lou who would say, Stephen, you, you, you know, stop doing that thing with your face or you know, you're umming too much or whatever? How, how did you get that? Uh, you know, know even what to ask. You know what, Chris? A lot of times in sports, if people have an athletic background, they understand constructive criticism. And when someone comes to you and says, "Hey, can you, you know, can you take a listen? Can you look at, can you look at my work? Because I, I just want to get better." People love that. People with an athletic background, they when they see someone that humbles themselves to bring you bring you to the point and say, "Look." This is what I want to do. I want to be great at this. I'm not very good right now. Uh, I would appreciate anything that you could offer. And I've never been turned down. That's why I'm a little bit more like our... Uh, your friend Kim and uh, ready fire aim. I'm not a ready aim fire guy. Right. I just go out and do it. And if I make a mistake, I'll adjust. But I'll, I will never get uh, criticized for not getting out of my comfort zone because mm-hmm. I think that that's the key to success. You know, looking at the uh, experience from playing days, you know, I, I know that you've written the book, the the Flying Illini book. The untold story of the 1989 uh, University of Illinois team. There we go. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, what I've always appreciated with you is, um, you know, honesty and, uh, and, and on both ends, right? You want honest uh, feedback or criticism, but, you know, being willing to step up and own it to other folks. And you got a little heat um, on your basically admission that you and Lou Henson as the head coach at Illinois did not uh, see eye to eye quite frequently. Um, I'm imagining that that's something that's helped you in down the road of you've turned it into, I can take that, I can take the heat, I can take the, cr- the criticism, I've been through that. Um, I mean, I'm imagining though at the time, it didn't feel like that. I mean, sure. were you not prepared for it at that time, or was, do you think it was just it was too much? You know what, Chris? I think um, when you when you do a project like that, and you know, I, I, 
I rushed it, um, you know, because I was trying to look at it from a business standpoint. I had some mistakes in it. I didn't edit it quite well and I rushed it. But what happens is when you when you're doing a, a book like that and you're talking about a franchise, mm-hmm. the University of Illinois basketball program, that's a franchise. That's not a that's not a just a normal program that affects a lot of lives. Mm-hmm. And Lou Henson is revered in that space. And so I knew where I was coming from writing the book. I wasn't I'm not a controversial guy. I don't set out to be a shock jock or anything like that. But I thought people would appreciate an inside look at one of the best college basketball teams ever to play. And the fact that what you see on the court is nothing like what you see off the court. And I want to give people um, a sneak peek. Now, I I could have gone much deeper and gone into some of the illegal things that were going on, but I chose not to go that route (laughs) because I just didn't I didn't want to go there. But, you know, the, the fact that people were upset about it, uh, the fact that I got a lot of pushback, uh, one of the assistant coaches, Mark Coombs, and I really had it out uh, based on the book. And I understand where he's coming from. And you know what? It was a great learning lesson, Chris, because, again, I'm a ready, fire, aim guy. I'm not I'm not really concerned about um, tiptoeing through the tulips and being always politically correct, because I think you lose a lot of information when you're trying to be too politically correct. I, I liked going through the process, but right. had no idea I'd get the negative well, feedback. But the, I mean, that's a little bit of a, you know, at least my issue, but I, I've heard this from other folks of, uh, you know, 140 character society as well. And I know that that uh, often was your pushback on the pushback was, did you read the whole book? That's right. Or did you read what is helping sell the book on one small piece or one small quote? It's not telling the whole picture. And that's the hard part today is trying to get that, that it's so fine tuned and correct and, it, it's almost impossible. It is. And I, I think people appreciate authenticity. Mm-hmm. You know, th- there's a, there's a, fans are short for fanatical. Right. And so, you know, a lot of times we want to be romanced into belief about our programs that we, we support and love. Uh, and I wanted to give people an honest view of what it's like to be behind the scenes um, of just some of the stuff. I couldn't go into all of it no, because I, right. it would have been a tomb. Uh, that I could have, <laughs> right. you know, but uh, no, it, it was a great project. I, you know, I ruffled some feathers. I, I didn't, I didn't engender myself to Ken Norman and a couple other people, but you know what? That's at the end of the day, you know, it is what it is. I would say what was an amazing part of your experience, you played 10 years, but you were, a total of I think it was thirty three games in the NBA, mm-hmm. right? Very short, short coffee breaks, right? Like yes. the time with San Antonio was one minute, yep, and one offensive rebound. So your offensive efficiency was outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> but but you 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 know you had the passion for sport, the sport, and it just it played out elsewhere. And by elsewhere, I, I'm looking at the list so I make sure I don't I don't miss anybody, but. You played overseas in France, in Italy, in Spain, in Venezuela, in Japan uh, is where you finished up, right? Mm-hmm. And then professionally, it was with the Spurs, uh, the Mavs, and the Pistons in the NBA on those rosters. You were actually drafted by Atlanta mm-hmm. in the second round in 90, but didn't make the uh, final cuts there. Uh, and you also played, in, and this is where we ended up getting to know each other uh, a little bit, was in the CBA. You played 
in Quad City team, uh, Wichita Falls, and two stints with the amazing Chicago Rockers <laughs> at the UIC Pavilion back in the uh, back in the day with John Trelaw and uh, Mike Davis as coaches. And uh, shoot, there was a favorite Carolina Tar Heel of mine that that, that played on on those teams. Oh, that was uh, Derek Phelps. Yep, I think that's who that was. And uh, but interesting, that had to be some interesting times in terms of the personalities, the coaches, and, you know, it's not first-class travel, and it's oh. not. But I think too much of the time is made of those negatives. My point is more, I remember I've, we talked about this a bunch, of the exposure to other cultures and not having everything handed to you has probably been as important as anything that you've done in your whole life. Yeah. So, like... What was what was being overseas? You know, did you always want to do it? Because I mean, it seems like there's a lot of guys who, you know, begrudgingly do it and always hate it. And then there's another group that's okay. It's I'm going to go make my money and get the heck out of there and come back. Where did you fall in that spectrum, and what did you take away from that? You know, it's interesting because I I started out you know as NBA do or die, and then all of a sudden you get into the business and you see how hard it is to maintain a career in the NBA. And so you look at other options and overseas, I grew up overseas. I really did. Um, when you can't go down the street and get a McDonald's or your favorite restaurant or something like that, um, you know, I would get those four, uh, four door, four door yeah, guys. Right. And I would try to learn language and I would go in and I'd speak and mess up the language, but people loved it, Chris. Right. To see that effort. That's huge Be- overseas. Right. Because I'm not the ugly American. Mm-hmm. I'm not the ugly basketball player that thinks everything should bend to him. I tried to get into the culture. Uh, very funny story in Japan, we played in Kyoto. And I played for Toshiba, and we had a 900-year castle right next to our hotel. So, I mean, when we came in, I'm the next day, I'm like, oh, I'm doing this. So I'm telling my American teammates, like, guys, come on, we're going to go up this, uh, we're going to walk up this castle. And they were like, nah, man, I'm not doing that, because they didn't want to get out, get outside of the comfort zone. So I take the team translator, uh, Kenji and I, and we go up, and we're looking, and the team that we're playing the next day, Sumitomo, there's a guy named Abe who was the meanest dude in Japanese basketball league history. Mean dude, right? And so Abe sees me in learning his culture in his castle, and I was treated differently for the, the, the remaining two and a half years I was there by oh, wow. every Japanese player. I think Abe must have put the word out that, you know what, he was in the castle, he was giving reverence to our culture, so he gets a pass. Wow. And Chris, I wasn't, there were no more cheap shots. Guys weren't trying to, you know, that's get up under my skin. That's amazing. And it was simply me just going in and, and doing what I do, loving history and loving other cultures. And uh, so those are one of the many uh, examples that I got from really maturing and growing up overseas. And, uh, you know, you're there on your own uh, or, you know, tossed in with some other roommate, basically, right? And mm-hmm. almost sink or swim. Yeah, and you, you were somebody that's going to go swim. You're not going to bail on that. Well, Chris, you know the thing is, I, I don't know. I, maybe I came here like this. Maybe I was born like this. But I, I love differences in people. You know, I, I've got my friends who, you know, we have the same interests and everything. But I love people who have different interests because I'm always trying to learn. 
And so I, I used to enjoy being in a different country and having to figure things out and, and approaching people because um, I think in the West, especially here in the United States, we lose a little bit of that where we lose the person to person interaction and what you can learn from somebody or what you can share with somebody to improve their day or what they can share to improve your day. And that's how the mentality I took. And that's why I loved every place I went. What was not to put you on the spot though, but I was curious of, is there a favorite, you know, anything? Barcelona, Spain really? is down. No doubt about it. Why is that? Barcelona uh, is similar to Los Angeles in the layout. Uh, they got a beautiful waterfront. The, the, the climate is similar. It doesn't get really hot there, but it's warm enough to where, you know, people can, they don't have to wear too many clothes. And so you get all the beautiful people from <laughs> Europe and all the people that are traveling there. And, uh, you know, the nightlife is, is vibrant. The food is excellent. But the culture is so rich. I think that's what I liked about Barcelona the most. The, the culture is really, really rich. You can get off into these nooks and crannies in the city and and they can take you three or four centuries back and they can give you an experience that is similar to what you would see 400 years ago. And so I, I just I fell in love with the city and it's still my favorite. Yeah, the food, the architecture, all the, I mean, especially the, the Gaudi stuff is um, under the Sacreda Familia yes. the church, right? Yes. It's Yeah, that's cool. And right, take advantage of that opportunity versus sit in your room and pout, basically. Yeah. I think more people could stand taking that kind of perspective. All right, so you played, like I said, uh, you, you, 10 years professionally. How did you know or were you told it was time to hang up the high tops at that point? It was interesting. My, uh, I was married to a college sweetheart, Leslie, and uh, she had really sacrificed her career for 10 years, and we moved 16 times in the first six years. <laughs> and that wasn't down the street. It was to different countries. And so she had had enough, and um, she basically said, look, if you're going to continue to play, you're going to have to come back over here by yourself. I can't do it. Uh, so I had a decision to make, and after my 10th year, I thought, you know what? I got a decade in. We won the championship that year. We did everything we could do. I just figured I'd hang it up, you know, to try to work on my family. And it didn't work. You know, she and I ended up uh, getting divorced, but I was happy about the decision because who walks away their last game as a champion? Not many people can say that. Not many. Right. Because even those who could usually won't because they're, oh, I got to go do this again. Right. <laughs> right. But that's the that's the good and the bad of being a competitor. Exactly. It's It's got to be hard. It's got to be hard. And you know, speaking of family, at that point, uh, end of 2000, you have you have two sons. Correct. And was the youngest, was he, was he born? He, he, was still, he was born. Landon was born, and he would come. The last two years, he would, he, he'd come back and forth to Japan with us. So and my wow. oldest went to school, all Japanese kindergarten, and then he went to St. Mary's International School. Uh, Hideo Nomo's son, among others, was with him. So he, he's, got, he's got some rich, rich uh, experiences from Japan. It uh, seems to rub off on him. Uh, he, he seems to like to travel a lot uh, these days. He's uh, primarily... Uh, DJ music, right? Uh, no, he's a hip hop performer. He is. He's actually a performer. He's really good. Speaks uh, three to four different languages. Oh um, he's a sweetheart of a guy, about my size. He, look, he can look intimidating, but he's a teddy bear, sweetheart of a guy, very intelligent. I'm I'm a follower of, on Instagram, and he's got great pictures, at least. So. Uh, okay, I'll, 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 I'll pass wears, it on to him. Where's Bardo? Is that his? Yeah, yeah, yeah. where's Bardo? That's his thing. <laughs> and uh, 
and so he's off doing that. And then your younger son is finishing up high school, right? He's finishing right? high school, Whitney Young. He's actually working on this movie called Captive State. It's a major motion picture. He's getting the opportunity to work on that full time right now. So uh, both of them are way smarter than their dad. Well, I mean, but they're smart enough, certainly, that they're seizing these opportunities, right? Yes. Yeah. And, I, you know, maybe some of that is that they were exposed to other cultures and languages and things like that as little boys that I would think that that maybe productively opened their eyes on opportunities and... I would think so. And, and their, their University of Chicago lab school experience was big mm-hmm. in terms of uh, formulating their worldview as opposed to being, you know, focused primarily in the United States. They, they're, they're world citizens. Right. Which is invaluable now more than ever. We're February 28th. We're recording this. So this is before end of college basketball season and the tournaments haven't quite started yet. Somehow we found a a break in Steven's schedule that we could we could sit down for for an hour and so and chat about this stuff, but it's going to get even crazier. I know you love you know it gets to be a little bit of a grind, the same probably way as it was as a player. You get through January and man, there's a long way to go, and then suddenly a, a switch flips in February. Is you've got to get yourself ready for the tournament, and um, I think you've still got that mentality. What what's your schedule like right now? Uh, you're working for both Fox Sports One or FS One and Big Ten Network, BTN, what's, say, you know, here we are on Tuesday the 28th over the next seven days, what are you doing to get prepared? You, you're bouncing around to games, to know the players, the teams across different conferences. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, what, I, what I've learned over the years in this business is that it's better to try to do your research throughout the season as opposed to cram towards the end. So I've been paying attention to not only the top 25, but typically the top 75 RPI teams around the country. And so I, every day I try to read about two, almost three hours a day for college basketball. And I know that sounds crazy for a lot of people, but it's, it's something that keeps us sharp and prepared because anytime on the set, Chris, I can be asked a question about another team and I need to know something. I can't just, oh, I don't know. I can't say that. I I need to know something. And so it's a constant, it's just something that when you get in this five to five to six month run, you've got to be really solidly focused on the research, watching games, research, listening to uh, coaches' interviews, listening to players' interviews. There's always something to be done. What's the, where do you go for that? How much are you looking at? you know, the different RPI and bracket uh, sites that are out there that are projecting uh, seedings and things like that, um, the the stats, um, are you looking at information, getting information from the schools or conferences, are you uh, heavy on a, you know, on a specific sites, Yahoo's information or whatever, since you do a lot of work with them, where, where do you pull that? Like, what's a go-to couple of things that you look at on a daily basis? Go-to couple of things are KenPalm.com, uh, advanced analytics. Um, I go to uh, ESPN.com because they've got a plethora of stuff. BTN.com uh, does a really good job of game recaps. So you can get a lot of game recaps there. Uh, nationally, also CBS Sports does a pretty good job because I like to look at uh, Lenardi's bracketology from ESPN, Jerry Palm from CBS. Uh, there's a, there's another uh, another guy out there that's uh, his name is escaping me from Fox, but so I try to go to about seven to eight different sources on a regular basis, and then there are some that I pull from not on a regular basis, but every now and then. But I, I just try to stay up on that and just try to watch as many games as possible because. 
the eye test is huge. And as we're coming into the tournament uh, selection time, um, I, I think that our sport is, is having a, a problem with trying to be too analytical. We're not, we're not trusting the eyes of the selection tournament, the tournament selection committee. And the problem with that is that there's not enough ex-players in the mm-hmm. uh, tournament selection committee or uh, ex-coaches that have an eye for, okay, that's a tournament team. Okay, they're, they're a bubble team. Okay, they don't belong. Because if you've seen as much basketball as I have over the last 45 years, you start to understand what works and what doesn't. And unfortunately, we don't use that enough. Yeah, it's gone. Uh, it's gone too much to the the trying to make it so black and white. You know, the argument on like the BCS selection that it's you know taking the human element out of it, and I think that that's a mistake. Right? It's too far. I agree, and I, I think that the human the human element is is what gives the media stuff to talk about. You know, when somebody's left out, or for example, Syracuse got into the tournament last year with a seventy one RPI. That was the lowest RPI ever, but they made the Final Four. Right. And so right. that tells you something. That tells you that, something. That the, of the stats versus eye test, for right. sure. How do you stay up on the volume? Because you can't watch 45 different full games. Right. And you also, I'm sure, don't want to you talk about the eye test. You don't want to rely on just the stats and the game recaps. How do you get to see... Beyond, obviously, there is some cramming. You've got a Big East game this week and so-and-so and so-and-so, and and you're going to watch those teams specifically. How do you keep up with the other teams? Where are you getting that visual to? You know what? There's there's some software that you can use to go in, and it it can break down specific plays for for different teams. And so you can go to KenPalm.com and see the analytics where teams are strong, where they're, they're not. Then you can go into this software, and it can break down what you're looking at. And so, for example, if I'm in studio and I want to use Nigel Hayes against Ohio State when Wisconsin was beaten, um, Nigel Hayes was doing something particularly well. I can go into the software. I can pick the exact time. I can go in the studio. I can give it to my editors. They can they can pull that. And then I'm in studio, and I'm, I know exactly what I'm going to because I've looked at it on the software uh, ahead of time. All right. Well, as I mentioned at the top, We're going to do this in a two-part episode, so this was a a logical break in our conversation, and on the second half, part two, you'll hear more on uh, Stephen's uh, recommendations for folks to get into sports casting, as well as uh, his nonprofit work and, and mentoring youths today. So stick around, download stream whatever the heck you do with these things uh, for part two that's also up today so please check it out and if you want to get directly to steven uh, connect with him head over to stevenbardo.com and don't forget it's steven with a ph stevenbardo.com or at stevenbardo on twitter or you can find steven bardo and his very good weekly bardo's breakdown on facebook If uh, you're moving on to next week, we'll see you then uh, with a look at the NCAA men's and women's golf championships that are coming to the Chicago area in May. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the first four episodes, they're up and they're great. USA Today's Nancy Armour, Chicago Sports Commission's Kara Bachman, CSN Chicago's TK Gore, and Spikeball's Chris Reuter. Hope you'll check out part two. And until next time, it's Chris Hartwig saying, stay connected, friends. (laughs) 